Colin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You've got this incredible list of people ah. that I've interviewed before. <laughs> and so I'm a bit daunted, I have to say. Wise up. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is going to be super fun. So Colin is the British Consul General in Cape Town. Uh, I don't even really know what that means, okay? So I, I understand on like a high level, it's like, okay, there's consulates around the world. But like, what on earth does that actually practically mean? <laughs> yeah, like it's a really grand title. It's awesome, it? yeah. And so effectively, I'm the, the senior British diplomat posted to Cape Town, where we have a range of interests for the UK. So we have uh, most of the tourists that go to Cape Town are from the UK. Most of the business investment is from the UK. Uh, lots of academic cooperation at the universities is there. And then also we've got a very long and complex colonial legacy in the area. <laughs> and uh, my job is to draw all that together and be able to speak to it, uh, to help British tourists in trouble, to help British business. Uh, and our HQ, as it were, the sort of the bigger offices in Pretoria, the capital. Mm -hmm. and link in with everybody there that covers issues across the country. Mad. A crazy job. Not a job that, you know, you're 16 in school and the career advisor sitting you down. It's like, have you ever thought about working for the consulate in yeah, South Africa? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, so far removed from just anything I would have imagined yeah. uh, when I was growing up here. And you really, like, I mean, your background, you're almost like a citizen of the world. So 20 years in British Foreign Service. Let me read through the list here. Iraq. Oh, Good one. Ethiopia, Afghanistan, UAE, New Zealand, and now South Africa. You love the outdoors. You love understand people, countries, and politics. Uh, what a career you've had, crazy. Yeah, I've been really lucky. It's it's 20 years um, in a couple of weeks, which sort of crept up on me. 20 you know, years, class. And I don't think people, you know, you're younger than me, aren't you? Do, do people nowadays have those careers where they stay with the same organisation or business for, for 20 years? And I'm effectively halfway through. Yeah. Um, what's great is, yes, you're with this one organisation, but I've done lots of jobs with it. So it doesn't mm. feel particularly like one job for 20 years sure. in any way. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you hear of like, you know, guys that worked in the shipyard yard or maybe civil service you know if they hit their 40 year their 50 year you know they'll get like a watch or something mm -hmm. it's like dude what's the british government going to give you if you clock <laughs> in 40 years? you know what is it is it like no. uh, like unlimited air miles <laughs> so so you get a certificate at 25 years i think right and then and i think that's it actually i think then like lots of people get to 40 years yeah and then and then i think you know because although i've got this grand title i'm a british diplomat overseas mm. at core when i'm in london i'm a regular civil servant mm. uh that like that you have with the northern ireland office here or the government here my department just happens to be the british foreign office yeah. and within that we then have branches and offices mm. overseas and when you go there you're a diplomat nice. with Sometimes this is the grandest title I've ever had. <laughs> so, like, do you have any, like, uh, you know, diplomat perks? Is there, like, you know, I don't know, license plates? Is there different passports? Is there, like, fast track queues at theme parks? <laughs> like, how does it work? <laughs> well, there's two of those, but it's not the one that I'd want. Um, so you do have a different passport that's, a, you know, it's a diplomatic passport that... Um, links to you being in your country, so it gives you a diplomatic immunity, um, which is important in countries with judicial systems that we might not trust or have challenges with, um, that you're not going to be sort of prosecuted because the country is an issue with the UK. That's mm -hmm. sort of that on the passports and the immunity. And yeah, I do have a different number plate, actually, Class. that is a bit weird because in Cape Town, there's not many diplomats. So people just don't know what it is. And they look at me and they think I'm visiting from a nearby country. <laughs> uh, but actually, I don't pay parking charges in oh, Cape Town. Oh, come on. That's the I get perk you've been holding out on. <laughs> <laughs> I get to park for free, um, which is good. 
That's yeah, really can't good, really yeah. complain. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So um, I don't know if this is a serious start to the podcast. I don't know if this is a funny story. I'm just going to jump off here. In the pre, uh, this is kind of like, you know, letting everyone behind the, the scenes to see how the sausage gets made. We sent everyone a questionnaire and asked them a couple of questions. And one of the stories that you uh, you kind of submitted was that you once rescued Emma Little <laughs> Pengali, who's an MLA, from a kidnapping. Let's go there. I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> curious is probably the best word to see where this takes us. Although this story only really works for people from Northern Ireland. So Emma and I were in a, a relationship that her family didn't, didn't approve of. And she got kidnapped, held in a harem, and I disguised myself as a woman to rescue her under cover of a dance routine to Let's Get Physical by Olivia Newton-John. Because this was actually Market Hill High School pantomime. Ah, <laughs> 1994. <laughs> and I was Prince Ali and she was Princess Fatima. And uh, yeah, we all we both went oh. our separate ways. I have not seen her That's since so funny. I think the pantomime ended with me singing Everything I Do, I Do It For You Class. by Brian Adams. And, you know, she's gone on to her career in politics and yeah. I sort of disappeared off around the world. So did you say Market Hill? Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay, so Arma, you know, how old are you at this time? Are you like 14, 15, 16? Yeah, must be like 14, yeah. 15. So like, that's nice because we, we kind of like talked about, you know, the career teacher at 16. How do you go from Market Hill? And this is a big question. So like, take us on the journey in as short or as long a, a road as you want. How do you go from there? To British Foreign National Service. I know. I British know. Foreign National Service. British Foreign British Service. British Foreign Service, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, that is a really big question. So I think at that age, you know, I had a very religious childhood, a very oh. strong faith, was on course to be a, a Presbyterian minister. Unbelievable. Felt very strongly about that, but that was where I was going. Um, and that I wanted to go, um, I wanted to leave Northern Ireland to get an experience and come back. So there was sort of that side of it, the sort of faith side. And then there was always just the interested in people mm -hmm. and politics and the world. And that was, you know, everybody listening to this will know Derry Girls. So I'm more or less the same age as them. So as I was interested in politics, the world was becoming interested in Northern Ireland. You know, mm -hmm. you had these people saying things about it. Bill Clinton visiting, Tony Blair on his first visit outside of London, came to Armagh. I remember meeting him. Wow. And I was like, I, I want out, I want out, I want to go and see the world and see these people and get this experience. And, you know, worked really hard at my A-levels, uh, then ended up being the first of my family to go to university, Class. all of that. Worked for a church for a year first in Manchester. Got to university, did a degree in peace studies, mm -hmm. as in peace and conflict. And I think what happened then was two things. You know, firstly, uh, moved away from my faith. Figured out over a longer period that I was gay, you yeah. know, which which we might come back to, and that Northern Ireland was not the place for me to come back to and sure. uh, figure out who I was, etc. Um, and also, peace studies just met these people, you know, twenty one, travelled all around Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, mm -hmm. caught typhoid, got sick, <laughs> all these crazy things, all these places I should never have gone to, and was like, this is it, I want to work and live internationally. And I actually wanted to do it with Marks and Spencers, who I'd worked for through university, yeah, yeah, yeah. who turned me down for their management training scheme, saying I didn't show enough enthusiasm for working in the retail environment, um, which is quite right. I just wanted to go and live overseas. And then a friend was applying to the foreign They office. figured you out, bro. <laughs> <laughs> they totally saw through me. Totally. And thankfully, you know, I'm so glad 100%. they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
And then a friend was applying to the Foreign Office, and I didn't really know totally what the Foreign Office was, but I applied and got rejected initially. Then they came back and said, oh, no, we'd like to... Did they come back and interview me? Or anyhow, there was two or three goals mm-hmm. at, a, at a junior level as well. And, uh, yeah, got in. And it all just sort of happened. Unbelievable. And I think the difference between now and then is back then, 20 years ago, you could go get a degree. I had a debt, but it wasn't massive. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was always going to get a job that would enable me to stay living in England in a shared house with friends, having fun. Sure getting a job that I would probably be using my degree for. Yep. And I know that it's different now. I know that I was incredibly lucky in the late 90s, early, mm-hmm. well, actually no early noughties, to have all that happen. And so is that the, yeah, out of Northern Ireland, interested in the world, yeah. ended up in the Foreign Office. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's so cool because, you know, as you know, this episode is in partnership with NI Connections. Mm. And you know we've done, I think, over 30 episodes by now where we interview people just like you from Northern Ireland who live overseas doing really interesting things. And, you know, a lot of NI Connections is is all about bringing people back to Northern Ireland. Mm. It's all about, you know, looking at the brain drain, looking at, you know, Northern Ireland's burgeoning, there's investment coming and all that sort of stuff. But I think we all agree that actually it's good for people to go. And it's some of the, you know, the most influential people, and I mean that in, in terms of people who are making the city better, have had that overseas experience. And I love the fact that, you know, there's 16, 17, 18 year olds that listen to this podcast who have that itch that you had Mm -hmm. and that I've had. And it's like, you know, what what do I do with this? And so I I love this series because we get to kind of peel the curtain back of like, this is how you can actually go overseas, have a great career uh, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean... And and sorry, I, I just think there's also something different here on the island of Ireland about people leaving. The language that we use here is, oh, they've gone away, they've left. Yeah, yeah. They're, it's like they've uh, left the cult. They're le- yeah, they've <laughs> left. Exactly, but it's because it's got generations worth of people's brothers and sisters have left and not come back. That's the language we use. In England, they talk about, oh, my son's working in Dubai or he's moved to London mm. or he's moved here. It's a much more transient, it's not the dominant cultural experience. Whereas here, every family has that story of, oh, they left. Yeah. And, it, and it's sort of, it's like, and everyone gets what they mean. Oh, they've left, yeah. they're not coming back. And I think that has changed a bit now. You know, you've come back. I know others that have, but certainly for my generation, I remember people saying goodbye to me. I always get a bit emotional when I tell this story. And I look back on it now with the finality of some of the language that people use, because I thought I was coming back, I was going to study and come back. And like, they knew that this was it. Mm. So, uh, yeah. I'm going to be totally honest with you, Kay. I've never shared this story publicly because it's, it's very embarrassing. When I left North Island at 18, I wrote letters to all of my like close people. I mean like 20 letters. And looking back now, it was almost like a goodbye forever. Yeah. Like, that's the mentality that I had. It's like, once I leave this place, there's no way I can come back. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it's funny, you know, I'd love actually, if, I, if any of you are listening who actually can dig out any of those letters, I'd love to read them <laughs> and put on social because it'd be hilarious. Um, but yeah, there is almost just like, if you leave here, you, you really feel like you're breaking away from the tribe. It's strong. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, and you know that you're signing up to now, as lovely as Northern Ireland people are to each other. There's something about when you leave, and you know, I've worked my accent. <laughs> I'm working hard to make it strong for you, but you know, people people will think I'm English. Get that received pronunciation <laughs> out of here. <laughs> this is an RP free zone. I know, I know. <laughs> and and you're there, and you know, because there's this assumption that oh, you've become posh. Yeah, that, that's, is that the language oh, they man. still use? Come on, it's so, so you've funny. become posh. Yeah, Ros- is your mic on, Roscoe? You can speak to this. <laughs> okay, I can understand this from the fact that I've got a posh accent as well, but I've never. <laughs> left here once it's because uh, when I was little I had to go to the language therapy and all that because I couldn't pronounce words properly and because of that I've developed a posh accent uh-huh. and every single time I've met someone even whenever working in a coffee shop or whatever it has always been what are you not from here or are you from England or something because you I've visiting? got such Is a, pot, your, yeah. a posh accent like it's just <laughs> yeah. I'm, I am born here don't worry it's just the fact I've got a posh accent in the end so I can understand it like it's funny <laughs> the, the perceptions that we have you know it's interesting and it hurt because Sometimes you have this stage of like, well, when I'm in England, people are like, oh, you're from out, you're, you know, you're not from here, you're foreign or whatever. And yeah. then you come back here and people are like, oh, you're visiting, you're not from here anymore. <laughs> and you sort of end up having to just be quite secure in yourself about, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've taken a different path. And, yeah. And I sound like this because I want to be understood mm-hmm. in foreign countries where yeah. English is a second language. Yeah. Uh, I, there's something I really want to get into, but what, while we're on here, I want to close this loop. So... Um, when I lived in New York, there was kind of this like very, very, I'm going to actually say bravado culture among New Yorkers where it's like, you know, 33% or something mad like that of New Yorkers are not from New York. Mm. So you talk about transitory place. There's kind of this, this mentality where it's like, you know, you're not a real New Yorker until you've lived here for seven years. You haven't done it until you've done seven winters. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. And so there's kind of like a high bar to entry in a place like that because you've moved around so much. Now, this is very deep, very right off the bat. Let's do it. Do you feel like you have, let me formulate that in a different way. Is there a place that you feel like you've been fully embraced and received into the culture? Or do you feel like you've always been on the outside of it because of the nature of your work, because of the transitory nature of it, all that sort of stuff? Goodness, that's a really, really tough question. So, so obviously, pre-career, you know, Northern Ireland was home. So it was Bradford, where I went to uni. And then within my career, when I'm in London, you know, I was given really good advice. I was incredibly lucky after my first post in Iraq to earn a lot of money and be able to buy a tiny one-bed flat. Nice. And my ambassador at the time, if he was talking about investments and all of that, he said, buy somewhere that, yes, it's good value, but it's a home that when you come back in between your postings to live for a year or two, this is somewhere you can come and settle. And I'm so grateful for that advice that I have a ble- piece in Brixton. advice that is. That that's my, that's my home. That's yeah. where I come back to. And it's a place I know, and it's a pretty bonkers place. It's changed a lot over 20 years. So um, there's that. And then I think, in terms of your question, like it's really hard in developing countries to really settle and be at home, frankly, just because of the income differentiation. So mm-hmm. like in Ethiopia... Or in Iraq or Afghanistan, where, mm. you know, the, just the security, the military makes it really hard. But I was incredibly lucky to do five years in New Zealand, which I finished just over a sort of a year, year and a half ago. And, yeah, I settled there. I was, you know, frankly, there's a lot of British and Irish people in New Zealand. So I sort of slotted into that. People didn't realise I was a diplomat. <laughs> and I had a beautiful friendship group of locals. So I feel that there, in yeah. those five years, absolutely totally settled it was home Um, and then in other places it hasn't always felt transitory but you've sometimes been very aware that I am not from here I'll never be from here Mm -hmm. 
but I'm loving living here mm-hmm. and the experience of what I'm doing. Yeah. I was out for drinks with a good friend of mine and I'm trying to phrase this in a way that allows it to be anonymous. He works for the US State Department. Right. Maybe that's a good way to put it. And uh, he also has had a very transitory career. So he's lived here, lived there, lived everywhere. And he was given a really interesting piece of advice from one of his supervisors. I don't know what, what the technical term is. And he said, you know, you need to get yourself a white collar sport. And I was like, what the heck is a yeah. white collar sport? He says, something that means you can parachute into a place and instantly connect. I don't care if it's tennis. I don't care yeah. if it's football. I don't care if it's X, Y, Z. Is there something, is there a tool you have in your tool belt that allows you to land into a place and build relationships relatively easily? Um, so, so I played hockey as I got older. So that helped definitely in Abu Dhabi and New Zealand. I'm too old for it now. I've not played in South Africa. So yeah, so there's that. I wouldn't quite go down the white collar sport. I definitely know people who do golf and, and rugby and all uh-huh. that and that hasn't been me yeah I said football and I was like I'm not sure if football's a good example of a yeah. white collar sport <laughs> so I think there's you know there's all of that um, which yes have that hook secondly you've just got to go for it you've got to go mm. out say yes to everything go through your friendship networks all of that to to find people and recognise that you'll spend much of your first year or two doing that and I'm in that stage in Cape Town at the minute yeah and in that, you've got to be frank and honest with yourself that it's going to be hard. Uh-huh. You know, you're somewhere on your own. How are you doing this? You're going to spend evenings on your own as you build those networks. But then, to be honest, if you're gay, it is sort of easier. Is that your white collar sport? My, is that <laughs> <laughs> you just land in and it's like, instead of going golfing, you just find the people and there it is. <laughs> you just like jazz hands. And there they are. <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh my goodness! I think. <laughs> let me try and give it. Yes, they materialise. You know, you amazing. play, you play some music. But so I think good. seriously, what in, with my generation, because so many of us grew up closeted and had to remake our friendship groups in our twenties yeah, when we yeah, figured yeah. out who we were. Yeah. I think, and I know my straight diplomat friends who've gone overseas have found it harder because... Yeah, there's, you know, no, there's, there's a, no real straight club you can Yeah, there's join. not. There's not because it basically involves get, getting married, having a baby and meeting them at the school gates yeah, yeah, and yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, having yeah. to be friends with the parents of your kids' friends. Yeah, which is just a bad deal. Whereas, yeah, whereas in the gay world, it's slightly more, is it transitory or is it recognising that we've all, at my age, gone through these journeys of remaking our friendship groups mm-hmm. and that people are more open yeah. to getting to know new people yeah. as they get older. Um, and I'm fortunate that I have this exotic accent and background that sometimes people are interested it's a to get to know me. I mean, uh, often on the NI Connection <laughs> series, we talk about how you know the Northern Irish accent is the superpower, where yeah. it's just like you land in anywhere and people are like, they can't quite place you. Oh, are you Scottish? Are you Irish? Some people are like... All they hear is English. Yeah. And it's just, it's a great, you you mentioned the word hook earlier. Mm -hmm. It's just the ultimate, like, conversational WD-40. Do you know what I mean? It just grooves, greases the groove. Totally. And try doing it when you're the the British Consul General. (laughs) And people are sort of meeting and all your predecessors have been very English. And people, you're saying hello to people. And you can see them listening to, they're like, you can see the cogs turning of, what is going on here with this guy? Who, Who is he? And 
really? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This is great. So uh, the thing I wanted to get back to is actually something you said at the very start, and you very organically and masterfully have made this transition very smooth. It, and if you're comfortable talking about it, I know you said before that you are. Um, you used a really interesting phrase to me about. You used a really interesting phrase at start where you said, "When I figured out I was gay, mm. I, I'm straight. I've never had same-sex attraction. I'm just really, really curious. Can you unpack that a little bit more? You know, what does it mean <coughs> yeah. you, you figured that out? Yeah, it's a tough question and. Uh, have I ever really figured out in my head that journey that sure, I went yeah. on? But ultimately, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s Northern Ireland, uh-huh. you know, homosexuality was illegal until the 80s, very, very strong, especially, um, you know, if you're from the... <coughs> Well, it's clear. Everyone knows it listens to this. I'm from the Protestant community. You can tell from like my name. You had us in Presbyterian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, some really strong views sure, about yeah. the wrongs of homosexuality. And so I grew up with that, but often with a sense of thinking that I was different. Yeah. And so you sort of, you repress it. And I had girlfriends and all of that. And, you know, I didn't drink. And then I got to university and started to drink. And there was a whole journey there of me yeah. figuring out who I was. And frankly, trying to deny it for a long time. Yeah. And I was very, very lucky with the Foreign Office that I joined an organization that had banned married women until the 70s and gay people until the early 90s. Like if you were married, 70s had to leave, gay to the that early 90s had to leave. That doesn't even feel real, does it? it? It's incredible <laughs> when you say that now. Like it loud. makes sense if you put an 18 in front of it. Yeah, <laughs> but it's but, like but 19, not 1992. Wow. And so I joined an organization that had this really terrible legacy, but was really clear that they'd got it wrong and wanted to be a welcoming environment for all types of people when I joined in 2003. And so that gave me the space professionally to go and sort out my personal life. I knew that I would never have an impact on my career by being gay Mm -hmm. in London in terms of what would happen to me. Security weren't going to come, even though I'd effectively lied in my pre-interview security clearance. (laughs) I knew that they'd even done circular saying, if you'd done that, just tell us and we'll work through it. So so I think a big bit of me for figuring out who I was was that professional security Mm. that I would be okay to then give me the personal space and various people, frankly, could see who I was and what was going on and sort of scooped me up, ushered me out of the closet and have all sorts of embarrassing stories they tell about me now. But I think it was, um, you know, when you've been taught something is so wrong for so long, the big battle is within yourself to Mm -hmm. accept who you are. And almost certainly that still happens in Northern Ireland. I know it's different now and I can see that from people I meet, but... But back then, and yeah, it was tough. It was yeah. a really, really difficult time and arguably took me until my 30. You know, I did this sort of very almost technical acceptance of it and told people in my 20s. But it took to my 30s to be like, this is me, happy with it, let's live my life. Yeah. It's a really, really interesting point about the professional side to your life. Mm. And like, there's a very coarse way of trying to wrap my head around it. But like, I understand, like, I've worked as a freelancer for a lot of years, and you you kind of have to conform to whatever the market requires you to be. And so it's interesting that, like, you had to suppress part of yourself in order for you to be a marketable employee. And once that was taken care of, it relieved the pressure for you to go and actually do that personal exploration. Just not a question, just I think it's a really interesting point. Yeah, like, I definitely... Yeah, to get through. I thought I needed to do it to get through the security clearance. I think I could have been much more open on joining and it still would have been fine. Yeah. But, uh, 
yeah, I don't know if I'd ended up in a different career like Marks and Spencers or whatever would <laughs> have been the same. And so whilst I haven't always loved every aspect of my job and my career, I always come back to this job helped me sort out who I was and live an amazing life. And I yeah. feel very, very lucky. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, one more bit here, then we'll go somewhere else. I can relate to the religious. I, I sincerely don't mean this word uh, critically, but religious zealous, zealousy of your teenage years. And I think your teenage years, you're you're going to be zealot about something. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. pick your thing that you're going to be zealot about. It could be a whole range of things. How do you start to kind of um, navigate through that in your 20s and your 30s? You know, because it was you wanted to be a Presbyterian minister. Like, <laughs> it's a huge part of your identity, a huge part of who you it are. Really is, you know, yeah. how do you start to kind of, um, yeah, navigate through that? Yeah. So I think for me, I, I basically parked the the theolo- theological piece uh-huh. of trying to reconcile who I was with biblical text. I just, and to be honest, it's in a box. I've never dealt with it. And I choose to see the positives. Yeah. I think I've got a really great moral center. Yeah. And that comes from, uh, from my religious background. Mm. Uh, my sense of what's right and wrong, how I treat people, how I engage with people. That's absolutely the values from my religion, my family, my culture. And, you know, that's great. Um, and then in terms of my job, I was preaching sermons at 16. Love it. I now host events and give speeches. So there's sort of a technical skill mm. set to be Bro, able to... Bro, I tell to, everybody, yeah. if you go through Sunday school, yeah. it's like a life preparation. You learn how to sing. You learn how to do all these mad games. Yeah. <laughs> do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like... Totally. And, <laughs> and you learn how to bring an audience with you yeah. on a speech or an engagement and to read your audience. Oh, like, I mean, this is a hard, hard question, but like, how many sermons do you reckon you were exposed to by the time you were 16? Oh, my goodness. Hundreds. Bro, hundreds. the narrative then, structure, your yeah. ability to, to formulate things. Unbelievable. Yeah. And good and bad delivery, all of that, and then working for a church in England for a year, all of that experience. So, yeah, so I had all of that. And then also, you know, most of the world is still pretty religious. And one of the things about... (laughs) Some of the places you've been. (laughs) Yeah. So I spent my time in, in mosques and with religious leaders with my, frankly, atheist English diplomat colleagues. I don't have a problem talking about religion or the place of, you know, Jesus in Islam or Abraham mm-hmm. or all of that. I've got my I've got my theological background, <laughs> and that's made me be a better diplomat. Uh, that what do we call it? Um, religious literacy. I can talk oh, about like religion yeah. with anyone yeah. with confidence that speaks to my so previous life and, uh-huh. and faith. And another person of faith will engage with that in a much more meaningful way than someone who comes in with an English accent saying, "Well, I'm an atheist, but you know, we want to X, Y, and Z." So I choose. The positives. Yeah. In your experience of being in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, UAE, do you find that there's perhaps more religious tolerance than maybe, I don't know, media would portray it to be? Hmm. You know, are you able to have those conversations with people or is it just... Yeah. So I am, but I do sometimes wonder is that if you're a diplomat, Yes. Are you engaging with the fully representative part of society? And that's your key skill as a diplomat to identify when you're really honing in on this is something that speaks to this country and who they are. And am I just speaking to someone who likes talking to internationals and telling them what they hear? (laughs) And I think certainly in Afghanistan now, you know, to be a woman or a gay person or any form of minority, is it's it's not a good place to be Mm -hmm. at all. Can you share more about your time there anything you think is worth so 
I think, where was I? So I was in Iraq in 2005 and then Afghanistan in, in 2012. And both very different in different ways. You know, Iraq in 05, I was 27. It was amazing. I was just the second or third youngest in the embassy, had my own car, driving around the green zone, helping Brits in trouble, checking on different detention facilities. Uh, saw Saddam Hussein on trial, covering it. Incredible experience hey, in my that's 20s. Carnage. Yeah, you're oh just there going, how have I ended up doing this? That was incredible. That's the epicenter of the world at that point. It was. Crazy. And that was where I wanted to be. Like, I joined the Foreign Office in 2003. By 2005, I was in Baghdad. Incredible. Afghanistan was different. Like, I was older. I was in my 30s. I'd spent a year learning the language. I was there in Helmand. And, you know, we were accelerating our drawdown to get out. It wasn't great. We can see now that it hasn't turned out well. And I think I have a much more mixed intellectual and emotional um, sort of view on my time there mm -hmm. that I find much harder, especially following events of uh, two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of professional experience, like flying around in helicopters, living on a military base, mm -hmm. all of that stuff is amazing. But you do need to keep in your mind that you're living this rarefied life and actually life for the ordinary Afghan or, or Iraqi is is really hard and you need to you need to keep that consciousness as well yeah yeah it's really interesting what you said earlier about how I'm kind of going to paraphrase this so feel free to correct me if I misrepresent in any way uh, there's kind of the economic barriers to some of the countries like that in terms of being able to relate with general population. And I think that's a really interesting point because one of my big takeaways from my time in New York was that my experience was that people are actually not as divided among racial lines in a city like New York, mm. but they're extremely divided along economic lines. Yeah. And that's made me really think about even this place where if I look at like kind of like maybe under talked about areas of real division it's among the economic lines oh yeah it's like you know because in, in in new york we would see if you're in the financial sector it's like you could be from anywhere in the world and you're part of the club but if you try to put a wall street guy next to a homeless guy mm. it's it's like people from different planets but they live on the same street that's just crazy to me yeah, it is. And, and there's probably an interesting conversation. I'm not expert enough here about, you know, the sort of uh, continuing legacy of the troubles and support for terrorist groups, that intersection with socioeconomic deprivation here. Mm. Where does that go? Because I see middle class Northern Ireland very different from what it was 20 years ago in sure. terms of linkages um, between communities. Um, yeah. And where I am now in South Africa is it is the most unequal country in the world. The most? The most unequal, yeah. Wow. So I live in, in Cape Town in a city of 5 million people. Um, 2.5 to 3 million of those live in townships. Um, what is, what is a township? Like it's basically the legacy of apartheid, which I guess most people know was um, white minority rule of South Africa until the early 90s. And those people were forced to live in those areas that had no, no power, no running water, no sewage system in shacks. And post-apartheid, those areas have got better public services now. Mm -hmm. But they're still there. Is it, it poor. Could you compare it to something like a ghetto? Yeah, yeah, okay. I guess so. Yeah. You know, but but more established. Right. And then there are also informal settlements of the sort of post-apartheid area. So people living in much more of a shack, even worse area. And that's 
millions of the population of Cape Town mm-hmm. living in those. And so I live there in this, I live in a broadly white, nice area where most of my friends and people I work with are in a particular socioeconomic group. And, you know, some of my friends are black or what we call coloured, which is a very specific group of the population that descends from, frankly, slaves the British and the Dutch bought from uh, sort of Indonesia, Singapore over hundreds of of years ago. And I was actually really ready for a break. I've been there nine months and I could just feel that this, this racial division, this poverty which you see at the traffic lights and all was just really grinding me Mm -hmm. of how do I reconcile my privileged life in this amazing city with the lives of other people there Mm. um, that the majority do not have a good life Mm. and then you come here so I've been in England for the last week I've been here oh I've been to Cape Town it was so beautiful it was so (laughs) cheap had this amazing holiday and with some people I have to say well that's because the prices there are built on the back of of cheap black labour working in hotels and restaurants and and that's that's hard to balance being the diplomat where you're trying to explain South Africa to the UK and the UK to South Africa and all the things I talked about at the start, but find your place mm-hmm. in that as well and yeah. speak to it authentically. And I'm yeah. sort of struggling with my words here, oh, but I think you get where I'm going. I 100% get where you're going from. Uh, this is, I, I'm going to be honest, this is probably the most ridiculous question I've ever asked somebody, okay? But I am curious, and I'm really curious on your your speculative opinion rather than, you know, this is the the 100% correct answer to this. But I think I, I really, really value your perspective because you've been in lots of different places. You're from Northern Ireland. Like, I think about this all the time, and I haven't been able to really get anywhere in my head. But, like, why do you think we as a species very often divide ourselves up into two camps? Oh, my goodness. Like, you've been in places where it's like, okay, Northern Ireland, it's Protestant and Catholic. And, you know, I mentioned to you in the coffee shop, I went to Rwanda, it was uh, hoodoos and tutsis. Yeah. And then you go to America, you could you could say in America at the minute, you know, it's even maybe uh, Democrat, Republican, you know. Yeah. And so, like, why do we organize ourselves into these? And it ha- it's not just one place. It's like everywhere almost has their two communities. Do you know? I know. And in theory, I've got a degree in peace studies. I should be able to answer <laughs> this, shouldn't I? And I'm from here. In 100,000 words or less. <laughs> <laughs> and I think... You know, most people in the world are are great people. That's been my experience. Yeah. And it just takes some dodgy leaders or money mm-hmm. to divert people. And sometimes people sort of have to follow that pathway. That's mm-hmm. that's what I've seen. Um, South Africa actually has, it, it's more than two groups mm-hmm. in many ways that each have their own history with the UK as well, each different black tribe, the coloured community, the white Africans and, and the white Can English. Can you just quickly but, explain the difference between the black community and the coloured community? I didn't yeah, quite get sorry, it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, because obviously when you say coloured in yeah, this yeah. Don't say that. You're not allowed to really, say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So broadly speaking, the, the black community have uh, come from different tribal groups like Zulus and Kosa uh-huh. um, and have been part of South Africa for in that area for hundreds, hundreds of years. When the Dutch took over that part and expanded from the 1650s onwards. They also had colonies in East Asia, in what's now Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, and brought people from those areas to, to be the labour right. for the shipping refilling station okay. that Cape Town was. So almost like non-Indigenous yes. black people. Yes. Right. But they come from that area, so they're not black, and they, under apartheid and previous on previous regimes of segregation, were termed 
coloured mm -hmm. and that term has endured as both a formal term during a party it but afterwards and frankly mostly the community own that word now yeah. as well you know so you, you sort of hear you might say how uh, when I was younger, women were reclaiming the F word as feminism as a positive word. I see it now with younger people defining as queer, reclaiming that as a positive yeah. word. Coloured community, we're coloured. This is who we are. This is how we sound. This is this is our lives, etc. So it means that South Africa, you know, this rainbow nation that they call themselves of so many different groups. It is incredible. The history of each of the groups, the way they interact, the energy, the resilience to cope and to live life in what is an incredible country. Mm. Um, and I get to be part of that. I get to be part of trying to understand what mm -hmm. makes it work, mm -hmm. um, which is great. So you've been there for nine months. You're on some much-deserved leave, and I really appreciate you doing this in person. We could have done it down the line, but I, I just... Oh, this is much better. I, I love the energy yeah, in the room, yeah, yeah. so thank you for that. And, you know, do you know how long you're going to be stationed there? Yeah, so we tend to do four to five years. Wow. So, you, um, yeah, I've signed up to four... Um, maybe five years. Crazy. So, yeah. And do you have like a, a specific outcome you want to achieve? Yeah. And even personally, like, is there one thing that you're like, oh, if I just was able to do X, I can look back on my, you know, uh, positioning, my stationing in South Africa, like with pride. Is there anything like that? Yeah, so it is different. So my job in New Zealand was very clear. I went out to do the Brexit stuff between nice. the UK and New Zealand and then do a UK-New Zealand free trade agreement, um, which I acknowledge wasn't wholly popular in, in parts of the Northern <laughs> Irish agriculture industry. So that was a very, very focused job on what you were there to deliver. South Africa's different because you're trying to speak and join up all these things. And if there was one thing that's important to me is trying to do something that makes sure who we are in Cape Town as the UK speaks to the full breadth of the relationship. So it's about how are we joining together, not just the business and the tourist stuff, but these incredible cultural links between our countries. So we've had people out from the Royal Shakespeare Company. We've just had the Netball World Cup. Oh, um, Yeah, we did a, I did a Eurovision event. So something that profiles and acknowledges that, yes, we've got this deep, colonial history, which mm. has some real challenges in mm. it still today. But there's more than that about who we are between both our countries and to be able to tell that story. That's what excites me yeah. in the job. Very cool. What have you missed most about home that is not people? <laughs> so, like, is there, like, is it a thing that you eat? Is it a place yeah. that you go? Like, what are some of the things you can only get in this part of the world? Tato crisps, proper <laughs> he said Northern Irish tato crisps. I can't. <laughs> and like, what flavour are we talking about? Well, here? it's got to be cheese and onion. Like, seriously, guys. <laughs> what do you? I'd like you say, to Mr. Uh, pop in here as well because I'm a crisp expert. This is our crisp, here. our in-house um, crisp connoisseur. I will say, from my perspective, any kind of barbecue flavour. Oh, good. you're a barbecue guy. I'm a really big fan of barbecue. And you're, you're cheese and onion. Is that what you're telling me? I don't. Have you tried? I, I don't think putting the barbecue crisps with that accent sometimes you have any. <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't like. Um, uh, what other kind of crisps did you miss as well? Like, so you're cheese and onion. So I'm yeah. cheese and onion yeah. and a good scone. Oh, now Ooh. talk to me. Are you playing? Are you? No, you've got to have something in it. <laughs> yeah, you've got to have yeah. your raisins or your cherries. And I'll be honest, I sort of defer to my mum when I'm back to take yeah, me yeah, to yeah. somewhere that has a good scone. I don't really trust myself on it. You know, so we were in uh, Port Stewart yesterday, walking down the street, and she's like a homing pigeon, sort of looking in. Yep, yeah, 
we're going there, look at those scones. It's really, because, I mean, Port Stewart is like scone capital of the world. So, uh, it is. you know, she must have had good instincts to choose the right one. Yeah, yeah. Impressive. It's great. So, is there a place, we've talked about food, oh. is there a place or an experience or something that chef's kiss that is just off oh, this place. Because oh, you said I'm not allowed to talk about people. Because obviously there's the people coming back and seeing family sure. and friends and all of that. Yeah, that's weak sauce. And <laughs> I really love, maybe this is a bit weird, just listening to people talk to each other. Nice. Just the, do you think I've been around Belfast, it's just the really strong accents. Mm-hmm. And then the classic is when people bump into each other in the street that either haven't seen each other for ages or just as, or are surprised to see each other. And be like, oh, look at you. Look at you. Are you there? You know, all of that. How are you? Oh, look at, oh, you know, okay. all of that. Yeah. Absolute. There's nowhere else in the world that you yeah. sort of just get that, that sort of, you know, you see the eyes, they get bigger mm-hmm. and then there's all these words come out and then it's the inevitable, you know, how such and such and how's her leg and who's died and all of that. <laughs> and we I had just... Mary's funeral. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jesus. I know, I know. And so I love all of that. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's actually only been seeing my, uh, my eldest daughter grow up, she's three now, that... Because um, I said to you, like, her mum's from German, from Germany. So mm. um, she's bilingual. She speaks German language. The tonality of this place is bonkers. It's oh. so musical. It's so nice. It's so many syllables. Like, yeah. how many syllables can you fit in a word? And so my problem is, with my job and career, is I have to get rid of these syllables mm-hmm. in order to be understood yeah. at times. So you've got to balance out... You have this voice that that people will genuinely engage with in a way and like. And um, so when I did work for Marks and Spencers, it always made me do the in-store announcements nice. because it just worked. Um, but you've got to balance out that I also need to be understandable mm. to people for whom English is a second language. And you know what the words are where you've got to... I've got to find myself like car, contorting shar, my mouth car. now, yeah, train yeah, yeah. eight, contorting my mouth to sort of get these words out in a way that I know people will will follow and tower. understand me. Yeah, tower. now <laughs> or at this time. You know, where you're sort of just you're like, listen to me. But yeah, I, I, most of it's instinctive now. But sometimes I get it wrong and you see people looking at you going, what, what? What was that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and then you're in the, you're in no man's land where you can then please nobody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, your mates are raking you. The guys in Afghanistan are like, "What the heck is this guy what saying?" Is this? <laughs> yeah, totally. And it was it was hardest in New Zealand because it was so familiar. It's mm. so close to the UK and Ireland in terms of, sort of culture and stuff. I had more trouble being understood there than anywhere else I've ever lived. Not interesting. Because everywhere else, I was. F- I was just much more conscious of needing to change my voice. Whereas New Zealand, I just forget. And people would just be, I remember with my ambassador asking his her his his at that time PA for for an R in in his diary. And the PA looked at me and looked back and looked at me and opened up the diary. And she was like, and she opened up a time in it and put in the letter R (laughs) and said, is that what you want? (laughs) (laughs) What the heck? I mean, it must be an inside thing. They must get it. (laughs) Yeah, he's new, you know, okay. (laughs) Crazy. I'd love to, uh, I'd love for you to go away. Your homework after this episode is to write a short story of what that R actually means. And just come up with this elaborate ruse of (laughs) what it could possibly mean. Uh, a couple of questions before we start landing the plane and there's a few kind of stock questions we like to ask everybody. Okay. Um, the first one is, 
why did you not get your hair cut in a hairdresser the first 19 years of your life? <laughs> so this is because my mother was a hairdresser. Oh, nice. And so she cut my hair. I like how you say her and not hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I'm, I'm trying very hard here, yeah. I've got an important question. Did she still charge you for the haircuts? There you go. No, they were free, but they were mostly the haircuts that she wanted me to have. Well, oh. I mean, that's, that's, that's the price you pay, you know. The, what is it they always say? If you don't pay money, then you are the product. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could totally see her saying that. Um, so, yeah, so that was why. So I went to hairdressers for the first time when I was... I was one of the scariest experiences of my life. I look back on it, I was absolutely... And you're sat there with someone with scissors all around your head. You're like, what is this? Yeah. And then it was amazing. They do what you want. Oh, yeah. And so I still get a pleasure and a joy paying yeah. for... It's my luxury. I definitely pay more than average for my haircuts to... Um, yeah. I love it. I enjoy it. Uh, have you ever had, you know, the whole hot tile shave? Yeah. Yeah. Of course I have. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's so funny that I like, like it. we trust these people to do these things. Yeah. It's yeah. it's crazy. I, but it's only whenever you say it was a traumatizing experience that I actually like, I'm, I'm thinking about the last few haircuts that I have. I go to a, a great Turkish barber who I love in the village where I live. And, uh, you know, it's only when you think about it, you're like, I mean, that's kind of crazy that we just do that. But that's, that's so many parts of our lives. Yeah. Although what I like is, you know, what I do like is having that relationship with the one barber yeah. that I go and see. And I've just landed on one in South Africa. So nice. after a few months of different people, I feel I've got a guy yeah. who does it, does my hair, does my beard. And we've got the chat. Love it. And the chat's important to me. It is important. Yeah. I like that too because yeah. I've got my own hairdresser that I always go to in Lisbon. I uh, always go to the same guy ever since mm -hmm. I've joined that. And it's just the best thing ever because it's just catching up, having a good chat, seeing how they're doing, seeing how you're doing. It's the best thing ever. Yeah. And so I can completely understand that. Like, So, yeah. Totally. I love it. I, I love I love periphery relationships. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> you know, it's I've important. got a very core group of people that are like blood brothers, blood sisters, family. Uh -huh. And but I I love the wee bits on the side. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I used to love in New York like the relationships you would you would uh, spark up with people on the subway, or even now, you know, like I take the bus to work and it's like it's those little kind of like right. translink connections. They're yeah. just so fun. Yeah, yeah. One of the um, stock questions is. Uh, and I know you've been kind of wrestling with this, but if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland oh. out for a, a hot tile shave, no, out for a <laughs> cup of coffee, who would you take? Where are you taking them? So I've gone back and forth about this, and I've just decided this is how I feel, and that's what I want. So it's, is it controversial or not? Um, it'd be Martin McGuinness. Nice. And, you know, some people from my community might just be like, how dare you? How could you do that? But for me, absolutely fascinated to meet someone who... That journey he went on, whether he acknowledges it or not, of who he was and who he commanded and, and all of that, into government, his relationship with Ian Paisley, the stuff that he did, the way he was very clear on why he was against things like the 11 plus, all of that. I'm like, there's an incredible conversation there yeah. with someone who's no longer here. And I would be like, Martin, take me to the dodgiest of bars <laughs> that I could never go to with this accent in my background. Just do it. Let's do it. Uh, so that would be my, yeah. It's so good. It. I mean, I, I feel like I was just too young. Yeah. I was born 95. So I'm very much, I'm, I'm a good, good good Friday baby, right? Yeah. And is that how you define yourselves now? Like how do you, so in South Africa, they call it the born free generation. Oh, Those born after the end of apartheid. So from sort of 1994 onwards, they're called yeah. the born free yeah. generation um, who didn't know apartheid. Like yeah. do you, I, I, I don't know if I would kind of like, you know, 
lead with it in conversation. But I, I think like if I thought about it long enough, I would say, yeah, I, I'm, I would I would comfortably say I'm part of the Good Friday generation. Okay. That's what I would say. And yeah. I, also interestingly, like in terms of identity, like, you know, I, I'm really curious to see what happens in the next few years. But like, I know certainly in my generation, in the circles that I've been brought up in, I have noticed kind of like a third identity start to kind of like, you know, if you imagine Bambi just being born, like kind of hobbling on its feet where it's mm-hmm. like, it's not British and it's mm. not Irish. There's kind of like a Northern Irish mm, third see. kind yeah. of like little fledgling way that seems to be going forward. Yeah, and um, I see that too. I think that's interesting. I'm curious to see where that takes us. Yeah, and I think you see that in, there's just some amazing comedians out there now, isn't there? Yeah, From Northern Ireland, just what's he called? Like Shane Todd, John Devlin, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are very clearly Northern Irish yeah. Comedians, yeah. I've got no idea, you know, what side of the fence or where they keep their toaster or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's something there. And then there's something about the different shops that now sell stuff that speaks to Northern Ireland. The yes. cranes, the the cups with all the wee sayings on it. About saying that both communities recognising, you know, we are different. And we might say we're British or Irish, but there's mm-hmm. also something very special about us. And I... Yeah. I think that's great, and I think that's helped me um, in my journey of speaking about who I am from Northern Ireland yeah. as well. Very interesting. There's a photo in Ikea of Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley. In uh, Ikea? I think it's in Ikea. I think they wow. think they're at the opening. I have to check my dates, but I'm, I'm pretty uh-huh. sure. I mean, why else would Ikea have a photo of those guys? Yeah. But, the, you know, it's the classic, you know, he, you know, Big Ian is like roaring with laughter, and Martin's got a, a wee cheeky smile on his face. And you just look at it and you're like, man, how epic would it have been to podcast those two guys together? Oh my goodness. You yeah. know? Yeah. Would have been fascinating. Yeah. Um, really incredible time. And I knew, you know, I left, I was looking in on it from overseas, but you could see something just that everybody was like, <laughs> what on earth is going on there? Yeah. And so for me, would be fascinated to, to be able to unpack that with awesome. them. Awesome. Great answer. Uh, what has been the most challenging moment of your life? <laughs> Oh smooth, goodness. smooth transition. Oh my goodness. And how have you been able to overcome it? Take it any domain of your life that you would like. God, I didn't get this question in advance, did I? Or did I? I don't no, think we, I did. We don't, no, give, you just we don't give this one. Like, if, just... I'm, if I'm honest, I think, I think we've covered it already. Sure. I actually think the sort of figuring out who I was as a gay man, yeah, man. absolutely the most challenging number of years of my life to be like, yeah, this is me. And this is the life that I'm sort of going to live and be open and honest about and all of that. And I look back and I can pick things that I sort of regret or would do differently. Sure, but hey, that's all But of it's us. the way it is. And you sort of move on and make the best of it. Great. This is actually a harder question for most people. <laughs> Buckle up. Oh, my goodness. Uh, what's the most, what's the proudest moment of your life? Oh, Wow. Um, I suppose there's there's lots of different moments. I think that, you know, setting aside coming through all the gay stuff and whatever, because I don't want to overdo that. I think there was a six-month period, professionally, perhaps I might say, um, six-month period in New Zealand where we went through Brexit. So all these agreements had to be done. We went into COVID 
New Zealand went into a lockdown much stricter, much a earlier than else. Lockdown, exactly. If I right, yeah. And I then pulled together this consular team of people. Instead of just two, we had like interns and the ambassador's butler and the science officer trying to deal with these tens of thousands of stranded tourists and then turned into the um, running repatriation flights to get two and a half thousand of them out of New Zealand and back to the UK. This was all within a two to three month period. Came through that and then we launched our free trade agreement negotiations. And so I think for me personally, that was just this... Yeah. I, even speaking about it now, I get tired thinking. It's like a Tom yes, Cruise. Movie. I did this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I led this process. That's mad. And so I think professionally that was, um, yeah, a really so, incredible time. So did like commercial flights get shut down? More or less. Yeah, yeah that's carnage. Yeah, Man, like we was, got stuck in Germany. I was in Germany right. for like five months. Yeah. You know, long time listeners will remember. I was like podcasting from, you know, the mother-in-law's keller, as they call it, the <laughs> seller. Because <laughs> the commercial the commercial flights just disappeared. Yeah, they did. Very quickly. And partly in Germany, because they then put on a global network of government flights, which led to sort of other commercial flights dropping yeah. away even quicker. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, so you had to get the planes and get people on the planes. Yeah, and there was a whole London operation, but then us trying to do it. You know, there, there, there are global crises around the world all the time that the British Foreign Office responds to. And often we get panned in the media or otherwise, you you know, that happens sure. um, because you can't be prepared for everything. And there's now with social media and all of that, there's always someone sort of standing up. But in, in general, we've got one of the best responses of, of any country out there. Um, but in COVID, you know, it was a crisis in every country in the world. Um, at the same time. At the same time. Yikes. And it was just, it was incredible. And I think I felt probably the other bit of why I'm proud is all the other diplomats had families and partners and kids in country. And I was the single one. And I was like, this is my moment. Yeah. I am doing this. This is me for the next few months. And uh, yeah, incredible. Well, that's the, uh, I mean, you'll know this from uh, from your boyhood days. That's the gift of singleness, as they say. Like it doesn't always feel like a gift. We haven't got on, I haven't got on to my Tinder uh, <laughs> experiences yet. So I think we're moving to the end, thankfully. Uh, final questions. Question we land in with everybody. Um, if you could oh sorry excuse me where are my manners Roscoe would you like to do the final question oh wow is this, is this the process I will, the process, I will yeah. gladly do it thank you for asking me um, I just noticed so, your body language was like <laughs> what the heck man <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you can go uh, back in a time machine to a younger version of yourself like an 18 year old version of yourself what would you say to yourself oh wow um so I know what I'd say because actually I put it in a post, I think, when I, the point at which I lived outside of Northern Ireland longer than I lived here. Oh, and I said, it'll be okay. You know, life works out. Stay true to yourself mm. and it'll be okay. Um, yeah, that would probably be the profound bit of it. Uh yeah, that's quite an instinctive response that <laughs> if I'd had more... That's what you that, want, isn't it? You don't want the person That's what we're looking for here, guy. <laughs> it'll be okay. You know, you're going to go off and explore the world and, and sort yourself out. and um, But you'll bring your bit of Northern Ireland with you as well, and it'll be okay. Awesome. Well, look, I want to give a big thank you to Anna Connections for making this episode possible. Like we said many times in the show, if you are living overseas and you're interested in moving back home, highly recommend going to niconnections.com, which is where you can find like all the resources you can imagine of moving family back here, sorting out schools, 
if you have a business overseas that you're looking to land into Northern Ireland to create jobs and investments and opportunities, we would love to hear from you there. The team at NI Connections, really, really awesome, really generous, happy to jump on mm. the, I was going to say the phone, probably more like jump on the Zoom with you. Uh, and chat you through anything that you're thinking about, any questions that you have. And it's also where you can be connected to this massive expat community of guys like Colin, who, you know, you've no idea where people from Northern Ireland have ended up. Yeah. And the NI Connections website is a great place. Just go and check all that out. They also have a free monthly newsletter where you can sign up for uh, to get latest NI news uh, across the world. So, yeah, Roscoe, thank you. Good producing. Thank you. Roscoe's just come on with us full time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great. So yeah, we're really, really excited. Brilliant. Uh, we've got uh, nine months and we'll see where we go. But yeah, it's very, very exciting. Listeners have been hearing Roscoe's voice kind of in the background for a while now. And I uh, hope to get this camera. One up day the producer so cam will be up. <laughs> I think on that day I might just deliberately wear a mask and take glasses. <laughs> face just reveal. Face <laughs> reveal in 500 episodes. <laughs> we'll do a face reveal at a thousand subs. So uh, <laughs> get your hair cut before it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. From Colin's mum. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure to drop by. Like. Colin, man, honestly, like this was this was unreal. It's been great. Uh, the Thank you the so variety much. of it's just unbelievable. I appreciate how open uh, you were and sharing everything that you did. And uh, man, the perspectives are just really, really insightful as well. So thank you for taking time out of your holiday to be here. And uh, yeah, great meeting you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Catch you next time. Bye-bye. That is a wrap.